thought I'd preach from the dandy. Uh, it's, uh, did you know the dandy's come to an end? The last ever dandy was published, and could we get one? Don't tell Sam, but we haven't managed to get one this year. So, anyway, I won't talk about the dandy. I want to talk about the biggest, <laughs> the biggest small event in history. Do you know, I find big events of history really fascinating. You know, those moments when the whole world is taken up with something or other, and, and we can all mark those days by what we were doing at the time. I mean, depending on your age, of course, but it's things like, shall I ask for a show of hands? This could be fun, couldn't it? Who can remember what they were doing on the day that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon? Fantastic. There you go. There's an example. I was actually just being born, just to make you feel good. I was just being born around that time. Or what about when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, the first lady Prime Minister? You remember that day? I remember that. That was just amazing. Where were you when Britain went to war uh, against Argentina over the Falklands? I was on holiday in Scotland I can remember it really vividly, watching it on the television, thinking, what is going to happen? Uh, or what about when Diana died? I'm trying to bring some of the younger people in now. <laughs> Diana, you remember when Diana died? Or what about 9-11? You remember 9-11? Yeah, just about everybody in the room probably would remember 9-11. Or Boxing Day 2004, what was it? The Tsunami. That's right, that was just awful. We'd just been out for a walk on that day and we came back and we heard this dreadful news about the tsunami. Or what, do you know, in a few years' time, I reckon, we're going to be talking about the London 2012 Olympics. We're going to say, where did you watch the Olympics? Or do you remember when that gold medal or that happened? It'll be talked about because it becomes one of those big events in history. And these big events forever seem to freeze time, don't they? So that our lives become inextricably linked with those moments and our memories added to the collective experience that we sometimes have with other people. Do you remember when we did that together? Kind of helps to cement it in our minds. And, uh, there are other, t- but sometimes there are other times when these big events are overshadow, overshadow or hide an even bigger event that we're completely unaware of. So whilst the whole world is distracted with something, uh, something small and seemingly innocuous happens, the significance of which is lost until many years later, like the birth of a baby, like the birth of a baby. Now, when Jesus was born, everybody thought that taxation and the census was the big news. But, you know, at that time, a young Jewish woman gave birth to the biggest news of all, the Son of God, whose existence alone would divide forever the calendar between B.C. and A.D. So today I want to talk about the biggest small event in history, which is the birth of Jesus And I want to look at some of the evidence for his existence. I want to look at his significance and his identity. Who was he? I'm going to cover those three things today. But first of all, let's just read the passage, which is in Luke chapter 2 today, verses 1 to 7. Luke 2, 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
This was the first census that took place while Quirius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Lord Jesus, we want to talk today about your birth. And I pray, Lord, that as we talk about these different things, this will be more than just an academic exercise, listening to facts and figures and thoughts and ideas. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to breathe on this message and bring it to life. We want to meet that Jesus today. So, Lord, just come and make yourself known to us this afternoon for your glory. Amen. So, let's look at some of the evidence for the existence of Jesus. What is there? Did he actually exist? Well, first of all, we've got the New Testament itself. itself. Uh, What I love about reading Luke in particular, he was a doctor, you know, and what I love is his attention to detail his desire for accuracy. He's really careful about what he says. And he tells us exactly when Jesus' birth took place. There in verse 1, it was in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was something that everybody of his time would have recognized. They would have all known about it. It was a bit like the poll tax. Do you remember the poll tax? It was a bit like that. It was one of those moments. The whole of society would have been taken up with this. There would have been a lot of movement because everybody would be going to different places to register. So it was entirely recognizable, but just in case, just in case it wasn't recognizable enough, he goes on, and in brackets there, he says in verse 2, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And, you know, most of us could read those words and think, well, what's that all about? Why is that important? Why is it in there? And probably wouldn't even give those words a second thought. But actually, these are really significant words uh, which place the Christmas story firmly in a known historical context. Jesus is in a known historical context. So even so, even though we don't know the exact date of Jesus' birth, some think it was in the spring, some think it was perhaps a bit further into the summer, certainly not December the 25th, but we certainly know what era or time in history it took place. We know that Caesar Augustus, for example, really existed. He was thought to be the greatest of the Roman emperors, greater even than his granduncle, Julius Caesar. It was said that when Caesar Augustus came to Rome, it was a city of brick, and when he left, it was a city of marble. And Caesar Augustus reigned as emperor for 41 years, and during that time, he gave to the world the famed Pax Romana, the great Roman peace that spread across the Mediterranean world. And when Augustus died, they mourned, the whole world mourned as if a god had died. That's how respected and honoured he was. But his single greatest act 
the one which would have the most lasting effect on world history is the one that is written down here in the Bible. It's the census of the empire. Because the census would produce a list of property owners for the purpose of collecting taxes. It was a thoroughly uh, secular decree, and it's the kind of things that governments have been doing ever since. He was the first real tax man, and that's what made him very famous ever since. So Jesus' existence is not disputed. It was in a real historical context. Uh, There's nobody that would disagree that he didn't exist. Scholars all over the world hold to this view that a Middle Eastern man called Jesus was a real historical figure. Even people from other religions would agree with this. So, for example, now I've been practicing this, I might get this wrong, just forgive me if I don't, but it's the Hindi Swami Bibikananda, I think that's right, praised Jesus as the epitome of perfection. How about that? Bibikananda said he was the epitome of perfection. The Quran records the existence of Jesus, calling him a righteous man and recognizes him as a healer and one whose teachings must be obeyed. How about that? One whose teaches, teachings must be obeyed. And Jesus' existence is also confirmed in the history books. So Jesus is not only mentioned in the New Testament, but by contemporaries and early documents like Josephus, who wrote at that time Pliny, Tacitus, Suetonius, Bar Seraponium, Thallus, Lucian, and he was also in the Tamold the Jewish law books that were written at that time. So, for example, the first city Jewish, first century Jewish historian, Josephus, said this, and he was talking about Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who's mentioned later on in the New Testament. He says that there was a man around this time called Jesus, a wise man. If it's lawful to call him a man, he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And Josephus then goes on to talk about Jesus' crucifixion and the resurrection. So Jesus was a real historical figure who appeared in a known historical context. And this is important to, to say these things because it shows that history supports the reliability of the New Testament to the existence of Jesus. But so does the Old Testament. See, Jesus' coming, the place and the circumstances of his birth was predicted in prophecies that were written hundreds of years before, which tells us awful, an awful lot, I think, about Jesus' significance when so many different prophecies write about his coming and anticipate it. And there are many things that I could say about this, but because there are some amazing prophecies and incredible detail in them. But uh, let me just talk about one or two things. That, for example, the place of his birth uh, is prophesied. It was being talked about in the Old Testament. So the very familiar Bethlehem in the city of David, which, from our point of view, only apparently took place by chance because of the census that I've just told you about that required Mary and Joseph to be there at the time. So Jesus wasn't born in his hometown. He was born in Bethlehem because they had to be there because of the census by law. 
Well, that's pretty amazing because that confirms a prophecy that had been spoken 730 years before that time by the prophet Micah. So in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will rule over Israel. How about that? This highly inconvenient, poor-timed, 100-mile, three-day journey that a pregnant woman had to make because of some apparent greedy taxman was nothing to do with that but to do with God's plan all along. His plan for Jesus not to be born in Nazareth, his hometown, but in Bethlehem, just like the prophecy had predicted. And actually... There are over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament which point to Jesus' coming, which point to his life, which point to his death. And scholars have told us that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled every one of them. The odds of somebody doing that are too great to calculate, but somebody's tried anyway. I, uh, I've mentioned this uh, statistic before because I think it's just so amazing. But uh, there's a chap called Peter Stoner who wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he applies the modern science of probability to just eight of those 400 prophecies. Because he says the chance that any man might have fulfilled all eight of those prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth. Now, I'm no mathematician, statistician, or any other issue, but I'm reliably informed that that would be one in one with 17 zeros, which apparently you say it like this, 100 quadrillion. Sounds like made up, doesn't it? But that's, that's it. That's the chances of Jesus uh, living up to those eight prophecies. And that's just too big a figure to even imagine, so Stoner suggests that we take... 10 to the 17th silver dollars, because he's American, and lay them on the face of Texas. Now, Texas has an area of 268,820 square miles. But he says that if you laid each one of those silver dollars across Texas, you'd have to cover the whole state two feet deep. Okay? Now he suggests, mark one of those silver dollars, stir it up, and then blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one marked silver dollar. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Well, just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing those eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man. That's how significant Jesus is. That's how amazing his birth and life really is. Wow. So we know that the Bible accounts of Jesus' birth and his very existence are true. Also that his significance was written about hundreds of years before he came. So what does all this mean? Who was Jesus? What is the identity of this man? Well, first of all, just, I'm just going to say two things, really. That Firstly, Jesus was a man. He was a real man. He was conceived miraculously, as we've heard about 
in the weeks before, but he was born in the normal way. He was fully human. He wasn't an angel or an alien or a spirit or some kind of superman. He had a human body. He ate, he drank, he sweated, he got tired, he suffered pain, he had human emotions, love, joy, sadness. He had human experiences. He had the experience of growing up in a family, of education, of having a job, of being tempted, of loved ones dying, of suffering, of being tortured, and experiencing even death. Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions and existence. He was a man. And if that is all that he was, then presumably we wouldn't have heard a lot more about him. Another dead prophet or teacher, or maybe some guy with some really good ideas. But of course Christians believe that Jesus was a whole load more than just a man, because he was also God. That's what the Bible says about him. That's what all the prophecies he fulfilled are about. God who became a man. This is called the mystery of incarnation. God of eternity entering time, becoming a man. Or as Wesley puts it, the old hymn writer, he says, God contracted to a span. And we really do mean God. We really do mean that Jesus was God, and all that God means, that he was infinite, that he was all-powerful, that he was all-encompassing, all-present, all-knowing, because otherwise how could you say that he was God if he wasn't also all of those things? But how is this this possible? How could Jesus be God confined, contracted, even minimized to a measurable span. It's an absurd idea. I mean, how can the finite contain the infinite? But that's what the Bible says about him. Steve read it out earlier, actually, that in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. All of God somehow contained in all of Jesus who lived as a man. Martin Luther said that the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. So if you're struggling with this one, you're in good company. It's beyond all human understanding. It really is. I can't get my head around that. But if this was true, then I think it makes it all the more important that we look at what he said and what he did with a little more seriousness. Because God cannot be dismissed so easily. If it was just a man, then maybe you could. But if this is God... It's not so easily dismissed. And then this... I've just lost my place, sorry. (laughs) Um, If he is God, what was he like? 
If Jesus was God, what does it tell us about what God is like? Jesus was powerful, did some incredible miracles. There were some incredible demonstrations of power. You know, wind, waves, spoke to them, they calmed, blind people seeing, the dead raised. All the sorts of things you'd expect from God. But what about his love? What about his kindness? What about his humility? What about, for example, the incredible humility of Jesus' birth? Jesus, God, was incredibly humble. It says in chapter 2, verse 7, we've read this already, that she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And that's all very familiar stuff, but this still amazes me. God wasn't born in a palace. God wasn't born in a hospital or even in the comfort of a family home. He wasn't even laid in a basket, but in an animal's feeding trough, which is not that great. It's dark and it's smelly, and it's not the best place for a baby to be born. It's just not hygienic. So, but why? Why, I wonder... I mean, forget today's standards, even if you compare it to the other miraculous birth that Luke records in the previous chapter, that of John the Baptist, it falls very short of even a semblance of decency. I mean, look at the fanfare that accompanied John's birth. I'll just read you some verses. That It says here that her neighbours and relatives, that's the mother's neighbours and relatives, heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. Because, you know, John was the firstborn son of two highly respected priests, never been able to conceive, and they had position and influence in the community which he was born into, and everybody was excited for them, and everybody celebrated. That's what you kind of expect for a significant birth. But there was no public celebrations for Joseph and Mary. Rather, the fear of a scandal and the threat of a charge of adultery loomed over them. A virgin birth so incredible that even Joseph found it hard to believe when Mary first told him about it. This is another another verse that says that the neighbors around John, they were all filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. John's birth was greeted with awe. Everybody was talking about it. He was famous already. It was a true celebrity birth. The pictures were in Hello! magazine, and John's picture was on the front page. This amazing baby born to these old people. It was amazing. But there was no such warmth that greeted Jesus' birth. It took place secretly. It was hidden from view. Strangers from their own community The only ones to greet Jesus were the shepherds, which was no compliment. They were the poorest and the least expected members, respected members of their community, likely as not to steal your purse or clobber you for food. The wise men, of course, did visit Jesus a bit later, but it wasn't until several months after his birth. But the birth of John was recognized by the whole community. It was a divine miracle, evidence of the hand of God working in our lives. Everybody was excited. 
revival broke out that John had been born. It's another verse that everyone, it says, who heard about John's birth wondered about it, saying, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. How different it was for Jesus. There was no respect, there was no awe, there's no recognition that accompanied Jesus' birth, even though naturally speaking even, he was a king from the line of David. Well, Herod wanted to kill him because of this when he found out about the birth. So Mary and Joseph had to flee for their lives to live as refugees in another country until it was safe to return. But he was also God incarnate. And although there was no public recognition and excitement and the hand of God is with him, there were the angels. They couldn't keep quiet about it. They burst out of heaven, a great company of them, shouting and making a right noise about it. The thing that the men hadn't seen or known, the angels were shouting about. And you remember that famous line that they shouted out, glory to God in the highest and peace to all men. They were singing about Jesus. But such humility of God to be born like that. His cousin John had a far better introduction into the world. And it's this humility of God in Jesus that gets me every time. See, I don't think this was an accident or that it was somehow God's lack of planning or lack of provision for his son that led to such humble circumstances for the birth of Jesus. Now I think there's a, a deliberate message for us here. Because though Jesus was by very nature God, that's what it says in the New Testament, he didn't use his position He didn't demand his rights. Instead, as Paul says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Made himself nothing. And that Greek word, the the word for nothing means empty. He emptied himself of all the privileges to which he was rightfully entitled. He didn't just take the low place, he took the lowest place. And because of his mission in coming to earth, his mission in coming to earth was to preach the good news to the poor, to, to the, the people that had no influence, the people that had no hope. Jesus lowered himself. He was born amongst the poorest of the poor to identify with the poor. His disciples didn't get it. They argued about who's the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom when Jesus takes over this world? Who's going to sit next to him? They didn't get it. Jesus said to them, I didn't come for that reason. He says, I come to serve. He says, I've come to to give my life as a ransom for many. What kind of king does that? What kind of God does that? Jesus came in such a non-threatening, humble way to provide heaven's ultimate service, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. His existence, his significance, all that he was, the manger and the circumstances of his birth, 
just represents all that he came to do. It fits perfectly with who Jesus is, that he would come that way. Firstly, I think, in making God approachable to all. I mean, who would be afraid of a baby in a manger? Who wouldn't come to a baby like that? It's God's invitation to us all. Come and see. Come and see him, just like the shepherds. They had so little to offer. Come and see. Come and see this God who humbled himself like that. Come to God. He is humble, and yet he is great. But most importantly, he is approachable. That's what it means that Jesus came that way. Come as you are, he's saying. Come as you are. I'm approachable. Come with your questions. Come with your concerns. Come with your failings. Come with your needs. Come with your sin. God has come to earth for all of us so that we can come to him. He's approachable. And secondly, in lowering himself like this, he's lowered himself far more than we'll ever be able to understand. From heaven to earth, that's quite a long way. Do you agree? A king in heaven to a baby in a manger, that's quite a distance. But he lowered himself even more than that. He lowered himself even unto death. You can't get much lower, can you, than the grave. He lowered himself. He says, I've come to lay down my life as a ransom for many. But the reason that Jesus did this was so that no human being across the face of the earth could ever get lower than Jesus himself has already been for us. It's it's so that we know that there is one who has always sunk lower. There's one who's always gone beneath talks in the Bible about the everlasting arms of God picking us up and lifting us up. They're there underneath each one of us. This is where Jesus went. It's when there was one who sunk lower that each of us can have hope. That's what this story is about, that we can all have hope. Someone has gone lower for us. Jesus' birth, his life and his death was all about God fully identifying with us. There was no ladder to try and get up to God. We could never have done that. He came down to us. He took the ladder away. He went underneath and lifted us up. None of us can ever fall so low that he cannot save us. None of us has sinned so badly that we can't be forgiven. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up to come to God. You can come just like you are now. Oh, but you don't know what I've done. No, I don't, but he does. And you can still come. That's the gospel message. But of course, if Jesus didn't just come to die and to lie in the grave, he rose again from the dead. That is the crazy plan that God had. Who would believe it? God is a baby. Who would believe it? A man who died and then rose again. It's so incredible, it's so unbelievable, it's either madness or it's true. 
we have to decide. After three days in the grave, he burst out of the grave. He was seen by thousands of people in bodily form, which is a story that we celebrate every day, but especially at Easter time. And the good news is that because Jesus rose from the dead, he's alive today. He's working, he's doing all that he was doing, just like he was as a man 2,000 years ago. He's still working amongst his people. And because he rose, he went to the lowest place so that he could get underneath us and pick us up. Because he has risen, we also, by faith in him, rise. And we don't have to stay down there anymore. He picks us up, and he puts us back on our feet, and we start again. That's what the gospel is about in a nutshell. He laid down his life. He's, oh. He's amazing. I'm so glad I know Jesus. He rose again so that each one of us can start again. He existed. He was incredibly significant and still is. He was a man, so he fully identifies with each one of us, but he's also God. But a very different kind of God. He's humble. He's loving. He's kind. He's laid down his life for us because he loved us. And then he rose again. And this is the Jesus that we celebrate today. And this is what Christmas is all about. I've raced through it, but I wanted to give you a picture of this wonderful Jesus. But you know, it's the humility of God that draws us to him in Jesus. It's the humility of God. It's what drew me. It's what draws me still. How about you? Because this year, I want you to know that there's an invitation for us all to come to this baby who isn't just a baby. He grew up to be a man and he died. He rose again and he is seated on the right hand of God in a place of authority, incredible power. Amen. I'm just going to pray and... uh, I'm just going to invite you just right where you are. I'm not going to have anybody stand up or do anything. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. But I just want you to think for a moment about what you've heard today. And I want to ask you, I'm going to give you a challenge. Give you a challenge. If this message has spoken to you, if it's piqued your interest, I challenge you to ask Jesus, Jesus, if that's true, will you show yourself to me like that? this Christmas. Okay? So just write in the quietness of your own mind, because he hears our thoughts. It's a challenge for you this Christmas. Ask that question. So I'm just going to pray for you, and then I'm going to give you a moment to just talk to God where you are, talk to Jesus, and ask him to show himself to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us now. We thank you that you are alive. We thank you that you came to look for us because we could never have got to you. You came to look for us, to find us, to pick us up. You came to save us, Lord, and we need a saviour. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. 
we worship you. We thank you, Lord, that you are also God, that you are king, and that you reign over everything. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to give you a moment now to pray your own prayer, and then we'll close.